0: This morning, what I want to do is to give you what I hope is going to be a Holy Spirit-filled pep talk as a church. And and what I really want to do is address two questions with you. Uh, Two questions. What is the Lord building here at Fellowship? And that's worded very intentionally. We are not building anything here. If it's dependent on us, if it's dependent on me, if it's dependent on you guys, we're going to fail miserably, church. We might see some success in the short run, but ultimately it's not going to last for eternity. So the question is, what is the Lord? What is Jesus Christ, our great shepherd, the good shepherd? What is Jesus leading us to do? What is he building here at Fellowship Baptist? And then the second question is appropriate for us to think about. And really, it's probably the bulk of what today's message will be about. And that is, what is our role in the construction process? Because even though it's not dependent on us, church, we have a huge part to play. Amen? We have a huge role to play in what the Lord is doing here. The the last thing I want to do this morning, though, is to just share my ideas with you. That would be completely worthless and a waste of all of our time. So what I want to do is use the story of Nehemiah for this purpose. And so if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to open up to Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And I'm going to do my best to quickly teach through six chapters. And I know what a lot of you are thinking. Pastor Terry, you've literally taken 40 minutes to talk about one verse. I know. I'm going to have to reorient my thinking on this. This is actually, I was telling Dan Brennan... Uh, before the service this morning, that this is actually an eight-sermon series that I've compiled into one message. And so I'm going to move quickly, and I'm not going to catch everything. And those of you who know Nehemiah's story and the first six chapters of Nehemiah well, I might skip some of your favorite parts, and I apologize ahead of time for that. First of all, let me give you the backstory. I think there is a model that emerges from the book of Nehemiah, specifically the first six chapters, that's very important for us to try to understand our role in the construction process of what the Lord is doing here. So a little bit of backstory. This is what's going on when Nehemiah starts. The powerful Babylonian army had invaded and conquered the kingdom of Judah back in 586 B.C. They left the capital city of Jerusalem completely desolate when that happened. They destroyed the temple that Solomon had built and that the Israelites had been worshiping in. The powerful gates and the walls that protected the city of Jerusalem for years were now completely demolished. They were reduced to nothing but rubble on the ground. Uh, There's an old phrase that I... Sometimes struggle to understand. They raised it to the ground. How, how do you raise something to the ground? I don't know. It's not what I'm preaching about today. But anyways, they demolished the walls. They demolished the gates. Why did the Babylonians destroy the city? If you were a conquering army, if you were running an empire, and you conquered territories, why would you destroy a city? Why not utilize that city? Why not utilize those walls and everything that was built? Well, the Babylonians, like so many other empires at that time, wanted to be sure that the Jews could not attempt a rebellion for themselves. And so they prevented them from rebuilding. They didn't want the Israelites to reoccupy the city, and use those walls against them. So only the very poor, part of this backstory, is that only the very poor of Jerusalem were left behind. Most people were carried off into captivity in Babylon, into the empire. If you were not very well-educated then you probably worked pretty hard as a slave in the Babylonian Empire. If you were well-educated, and this is where the, the stories of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out of, then you were put to use probably in the palace and in aid of running the empire. But most people were carried off. Only the very poor were left behind. However, the Babylonians later in the timeline would be conquered by the even more powerful Persians. And and many Jews then were taken from the Babylonian Empire and into the Persian Empire. So right there, I just gave you about 100 years of biblical history in just a couple of minutes there. It's an oversimplification, but it's basically what happened. So we have now many Jewish people, many Israelites, who are now in captivity in Persia. And this is where Nehemiah's story Comes from. So who was Nehemiah? Nehemiah was a Jew who had been born in Persia about a century after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. So Persia was his home. The empire of Persia was all he had ever known. He lived in captivity, but he would have grown up on stories by his parents, by his grandparents. They would have told these stories about the homeland. He would have been taught the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon. Most importantly, Nehemiah would have learned of Jehovah, the God of his fathers, the God of Israel, the God of the great city of Jerusalem. And As you look at this book and you study the story of Nehemiah, his story makes it clear that Nehemiah had not put his trust in the Persian gods. He didn't trust in the Persian pantheon of gods, but he trusted in the living and true God of his fathers, the God of Israel. And Nehemiah was ready. He was ready for a God-sized mission. He was ready to be used by God because he was listening to God. There's all kinds of mini-sermons, I I think you're picking up on this, that I could take off on, but I can't. But he was listening to God. He was a man of prayer, if you read his story. We're going to pull that out here in just a minute. He was a man who had studied the Scriptures. Also, he had done very well for himself in Babylon. And he had, or in Persia, excuse me. How well? Well, he was the cupbearer to the king. And when you first hear that, you think, well, big whoop. He's a servant. He hands the king his cup. What's the big deal about that? Actually, it was a big deal. You see, to be the cupbearer of the king wasn't the job of a servant or a slave as much as it was of an officer of high rank. As a matter of fact, if you study this in history, the cupbearer was next in line to a prince. There was the king, there were the princes, and then the cupbearer. He was on the third rung of authority in the Persian Empire. This was someone who was held in very high esteem. He was trusted with the very life of the king, he was to be the one to make sure that the king wasn't going to be poisoned and that everything was safe that was coming into the king's court. And so being in the king's court, Nehemiah, was very uniquely positioned. Don't miss that. God had put Nehemiah, this man of prayer, this man of the word, this man who had trusted in the living God, in Jehovah, the God of his fathers, he had put him in a very unique position. He would have known well, what was happening all throughout the Persian Empire, he would have known well all that was happening back in his homeland, the homeland of his fathers in Israel. He would have heard the news of Jerusalem. What was the mission that Nehemiah was given by God? In the context of our opening questions, here is how I want you to think about it. What was the Lord going to build through Nehemiah, and how did he want to use Nehemiah in that process? Well, let's look at the first few verses. We're going to start digging into the text here. I'm going to move quick. I'm going to read fast. I'm going to try to hit you with a lot of passages through the first six chapters. But stay with me, and let's, let's study this together. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chisleph in the 20th year. As I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The people that were still, translation, the people that were still back in the city of Jerusalem were in great trouble and shame is the report that comes to the king. Nehemiah is in the presence of the king as they're hearing this news. And this is why. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So how does Nehemiah respond to this news? He gets this news of his homeland, of the city of his forefathers, the city of Jerusalem, that the walls of Jerusalem are still in rubble, They have been destroyed years and years, about a century prior to them, about 100 years prior to this occurrence was when the Babylonians came in and destroyed the city, and they're still in rubble. The walls are still broken down. The gates are still destroyed. How does Nehemiah respond? This is his response to this news if you look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. If I was going to take a tangent right now, and I'm not going to, I would talk to you about this idea. What makes us weep? What is happening in our world today that when we hear the news of it, it makes us weep? If I was going to go off on a tangent right now, I would talk to you about the plight of the unborn and the millions and millions of children who are killed in their mother's womb if I was going to do that. But I can't. So let me rein it back in here. And here's Nehemiah. He's mourning for days and he's continuing to fast and he's praying before the God of heaven. And church, it's during this time of weeping and mourning and fasting and praying that God gives Nehemiah his mission. So another mini-sermon that could be preached at this moment would be as if you're not weeping and mourning and fasting and praying over what's happening in our world, why would we think that we would be given a mission by God? I want to give you six statements this morning. This is what I have time to give you today. I want to give you six statements this morning about Nehemiah that allowed him to be used by God to accomplish a God-sized mission. Six ideas from the first six chapters. Here's the first one. Nehemiah prayed. He prayed. So often we tack this on to the end of a list, don't we? We say things like, well, hey, help in this way, or you can help in this way, you can help in this way. If you can't do anything else, then please pray. What a horrible way to phrase that. And forgive me when I've done that. Prayer ought to be out front. Prayer, church, is what wins the battle. Prayer is what gets the mission done. And Nehemiah prayed. He prayed. His prayer is recorded for us in chapter 1 and verses 5 through 11. How does he pray? It's worth our time to break it down. i got to do it quick, but here we go. This is the breakdown of Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1. Follow along with me. First of all, he worships. And, and the text there is for you. And I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. First of all, Nehemiah worships God. He starts with worship. So important when we pray. Second of all, Nehemiah confesses the sins of his people. Look at the text here, uh, verses 6 through 7. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Confessing the sins, don't miss any of this, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, he's confessing national sins. Good model for us to follow here, church, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. What's he doing? He's personalizing it. I've been a part of it. I stand with them. I stand with the people of my nation. We have sinned against you. Not they have sinned against you. We have sinned against you. He's making it personal. He's repenting. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that that you commanded your servant Moses. Now, It would be very easy just to move on and miss something here, but this is so important. How consistent is his prayer, according to these verses? He prays day and night, it says. How long does he pray? Unless you are a scholar of the Persian calendar. Do we have any of those in here? Unless you are a biblical scholar of the Persian calendar, you're not going to know this, okay? But on the Persian calendar, how long was it from Chislev to Nisan? Chapter 1, verse 1, if you want to see where those months are noted. Chapter 2, verse 1. Because this is how long Nehemiah prays, from Chislev to Nisan. And if you've never studied the ancient Persian calendar, you don't know that that's four months. Ne- Nehemiah prays day and night, church, for four months about this. He hears the news, he weeps, he breaks down, he prays, and he fasts for four Months concerning what's going on in his homeland. A big part of his prayer is confession. His nation's sin, his family's sin, his own sin. May we be quick. May we be quick to confess our sins in prayer and to turn from them. Uh, our ladies on Tuesday nights are studying David right now. Beth Moore's Bible study in the book of David. I'll tell you what, I, sometimes I read the story of David, I don't know why he was a man after God's own heart. Other than this, he was quick to confess. He was quick to seek God. That's the only thing I can think of, because otherwise David was pretty much a scoundrel. <laughs> but he was quick to confess. He was quick to repent. And his heart was leaning on God. Third, got to move on. Third, Nehemiah calls on God to remember his promises. Look at the passage there, verses 8 through 10. Chapter 1. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, listen to this, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, this is God talking to Israel, if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, I think he's talking about the dispersion here, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. So Nehemiah calls on God to remember this promise. And he says, they are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. All Nehemiah is doing here is saying, God, this is who you are, and this is what you've promised us. He's reminding God of his promises. Now, does that mean God forgets his promises? No, absolutely not. But it's a part of Nehemiah's prayer to stir the heart of God. So one other passage we could look at on that same note, what had God promised to Israel, is one that we quote all the time. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, "...if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray..." and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Amen? And we need to be a people who are doing this for our nation, church. Fourth, got to move forward. Fourth, Nehemiah asks for success. Don't miss this. He asks for success. This is not selfish. Why is it not selfish for Nehemiah to ask for success? Because Nehemiah is not asking for a new car. He's not asking for a bigger house. He's not asking for a better job. Nehemiah is asking that God would accomplish his mission. You see, when we pray those prayers, when we pray the prayers of God's mission on the earth, it's not selfish. It's exactly what we ought to be doing. And so he asks for success, that God would give him success in his mission. Look at uh, verse 11. It's on the screen for you. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who's the man? It's the man he's about to go in front of, the king. A man who could take his life, for no reason whatsoever. And he's about ready to go before him. And that leads us up to the next idea. Nehemiah prayed, but then Nehemiah acted. Don't get those reversed. He prayed, and then he acted. Both are essential. Both are essential, but he prayed, and then he acted. He prayed for four months, day and night, and then he acted. Both are absolutely essential. He talks to the king. I love this. He uses his relationship with the king for leverage. Doesn't that seem so like human, business like, almost political? Church, I can't, the only way I can say this to you is I've, I've lived this in a much smaller scale. I can't tell you, I, I could tell you, it would take a few hours, about all the people. In my work in ministry, contracting with government over the years, federal, state, county, city, government, the Christians, the Jesus lovers that God had put in a position that when our program came to their desk, they said, yeah, let's do that. And and this is what Nehemiah does. He leverages a relationship. Again, not selfishly, but for the goals of the kingdom to accomplish God's mission. See, if you take these principles, and many have, I've got to say this. Forgive me if I end up going a minute or two over. It's so important. This is how we can get off track with this. People have studied Nehemiah's story, and they've turned it into business books, books on business management, books on politics and all those things, and there's certainly a lot that you can pull out of here and learn from for those endeavors. I have personally. But the thing is, is if your motivation is self-driven, if your motivation is to accomplish your purpose, if your motivation is to build your kingdom, then you're not living like Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah was all about God's kingdom. Nehemiah was all about accomplishing God's mission. So use these principles, but use them in the right way. Well, here's what the text says. After that point of Nehemiah acted, in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. That's his day job, right? Now, I had not been sad in his presence. What's Nehemiah saying? He's saying, basically, I'm a pretty happy guy, and I've always been pretty up around the king. I've been joyful around the king. And now he's sad because of this news about Jerusalem. And the king said to me, why is your face sad? seeing you are not sick. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. This is, this is Artaxerxes talking here. He, he must have been a pretty sensitive king because he looks at, I assume, someone that he would consider a friend now. He trusted him with his life. He said, what's wrong, man? He said it in Persian, but, you know, what's wrong? Why are you, why are you down? And then, look at what the text says. Then I was very much afraid. Nehemiah's like, oh, snap. Oh, boy. How's this, how's this going to go? I said to the king, let the king live forever. Good way to start. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? <laughs> the king's not only sensitive, he's perceptive. Nehemiah, what do you want? <laughs> let's, let's cut to the chase, stop beating around the bush. What do you want here? What are you requesting, he says. So I prayed to the God of heaven, he takes a breath. He's in the presence of the king. He says a quick prayer. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And then I picture Nehemiah shutting his eyes and just waiting. Because this man could have taken up his sword in this moment and cut off his head, and nobody would have said a thing. They would have cleaned up the mess, hired a new cupbearer, Life in Persia moves on hap- happily. Nehemiah had no idea what was about to happen. All he knew is that he had soaked this in four months of consistent prayer. And he knew that it was God's will. And so he comes before him and he makes this request. And he has no idea if, wh- how the king is going to respond. What does Artaxerxes say? Uh, I think Nehemiah may have been a little bit surprised at the response. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, I'm not sure why that's important in the text, but it's there. But the queen is right next to him. Maybe she was the more level-headed. Maybe that's like part of the reason why he responds well. I have no idea. How long will you be gone, he says, and when will you return? Nehemiah opens his eyes. What? He's asking me details about this? It's an open door. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, okay, wait a minute, I just thought about this. Have any of you read that children's book, If You Give a Mouse a Cookie? (laughs) You ever read that one to your kids? It's a great book. If you give a mouse a cookie, what's he going to do? Ask for a glass of milk. And then the story goes on and on and on. Just read this. This is exactly what Nehemiah does. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river and may let me pass through until I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, and, and that he would give me the timber to make the beams for the gates and the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city, for the house that I shall occupy. <laughs> if you give a mouse a cookie... The king says, Yeah, go ahead, take the time off, man. I got this. We'll 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 have someone fill in for you back here in the throne room. You know, your your second in command can do your job and you go ahead, you go rebuild your walls, have fun with your little project. Nehemiah says, Well wait a minute, I got a few more a few more questions to ask. I don't have any supplies, and I don't know how I'm gonna get there safely. And so King, if you could help with that, like safety and passage and, and if you could provide all of the tools and if you could King, if you could fund the entire expedition and build me a house in Jerusalem, would you mind doing all that? So he asks all these questions and look at the response. And the king granted me what I asked. And Nehemiah, never missing an opportunity, church, to give glory to the living God, says, for the good hand... Of my God was upon me. I was successful, Nehemiah says, not because of me or the way I had structured it or anything else, but because God's hand was on me to accomplish his mission. These were some pretty bold actions by Nehemiah. He prayed, he acted. Don't worry, these next ones are going to go quicker. Nehemiah built a team. This is so important. Nehemiah realized that he could not rebuild the walls of Jerusalem all by himself. He had to have people to help him. We all know how important a good team is, don't we? Whether you play sports, football players, basketball players in the room, baseball players in the room. If you tried to win the game all by yourself, well, I guess Tom Brady proved in the Super Bowl you can do that. (laughs) Maybe it is sometimes all about one guy. But most of the time, it takes a team. You don't win a competitive team sport completely on your own. If you play in a band, if you play in the school band, if you play music, right, you need other musicians. You need people on your team. If you work in a business, you need the help of your teammates. If you work in a ministry church, you need the help of a team. We need other people to help us. Accomplish our mission. We need other people to help us accomplish our mission. Nehemiah knows that he needs to recruit others who are going to help him accomplish his mission. Look at the text, chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. Then I said to them, You see the trouble? He's talking to other Israelites here in this passage. That's the context. You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Translation, so that people stop picking on us, that people stop attacking us. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words of the king that he had spoken to me. And they said, this is what the people say, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah shares with other people the mission that he had been given by God, and they get on board. They get on board with what God is already doing. They're ready to work. Church, again, if I was going to take off on another tangent, another sermon here, I would remind you of uh, Dr. Henry Blackaby's book from years ago, Experiencing God. And what Dr. Blackaby, a great Baptist preacher from a few decades ago, what Dr. Blackaby says in that book is don't come up with your own dream and then ask God to bless it. That's not the biblical model. The biblical model is to see what God is already doing and get on board with it. Amen? See what God's mission is, to join God's mission. Too often we get that turned around, and I've even heard it preached that way. Well, come up with a great idea and then ask God to bless it. No. No. Seek God for what his mission is and jump on board with what God is already doing. The people are ready to work here. Nehemiah prayed. That was number one. Just to review. Nehemiah acted. Nehemiah teamed up. The third one is real quick, though it takes reading all of chapter 3 to really feel the weight of it, and I would encourage you to do that. If you're taking notes just jot a quick note, read chapter 3. All of Nehemiah chapter 3 is a detailed description of the work that was accomplished. It's a list. And sometimes we hit those passages in the Bible and we get a few verses in and we're like, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. And we skip on, right? But Nehemiah chapter 3 is a list of who who the family was or who the people group were, and what work they accomplished, what they built on the wall or what gate they repaired, right? And, and that's so important because what you see in Nehemiah chapter 3 is that it took a team to get it done. It took a whole group of people to accomplish the work. How many of you think you already have an idea what my, uh, what my application is going to be this morning? Can I see your hand? Like you already got a feel for where I'm going with all this. Only a few of you. Okay, good. I'm doing a pretty good job keeping this cloaked. All right, so Nehemiah worked. Nehemiah worked. The next one is Nehemiah overcame adversity, and this is so important. What barriers did Nehemiah have to overcome? I've got to do this quickly, but I need to tell you about this. He had strong opposition from the outside, first of all. If you read the first six chapters, and please do that, there are two men that are just a thorn in his flesh, and their names are Sanballat and Tobiah. And they, they attack him consistently with criticism, with ridicule, physically. They come after him, and they come after his team. And, and he also had to overcome discouragement on the inside because his team was getting tired. I mean, this was a big job, repairing these walls. Uh, let's look at just one verse here, Nehemiah 4.10. In, in Judah, it was said, the strength of their, those who bear the burdens is failing. Who are they talking about? Everybody who's helping Nehemiah. Nehemiah's team, they're getting discouraged. It's a big job. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. I want you to picture what this must have been like. Miles and miles and miles of wall, several feet thick, and it's all broken into pieces. It's all rubble for miles I mean, can you imagine the job that had to be done in clearing all that away before they could even start rebuilding? How discouraging that would have been. Oh, well, I don't know, yeah, what are you doing today for work? Well, same as you, we're going to go move rocks all day long, Right? And they had to do that for days to pull all of that aside before they could even start the rebuilding process. The workers were exhausted and they were frightened of the opposition that was facing them, led by Sanballat and Tobiah. And just to put it very simply, morale was low. So how does Nehemiah keep moving forward? How does he move forward through those barriers? Again, there's a great model for us to follow here. I'm just going to walk you through it very fast. First of all, he prays. No shocker there. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Second of all, Nehemiah works. No surprise there. Nehemiah is a hard worker. This is one of my favorite verses in Nehemiah. I love chapter 4, verse 6. And it just very, very simply says, so we built the wall. We got it done. They're not completely done yet. Look at what he says. And all the wall was joined together, so they built it. It was all connected to half of its height. Makes a lot of sense. Don't build half of a wall all the way to the top height and leave half of your city, you know, uh, indefensible where people could just come in and raid. But they built that wall all the way around. They built it up slowly to about, I don't know what the full height was supposed to be, but they got it about halfway there. It was a line of protection against their enemies. We built the wall, joined together to half of its height. And I love this last phrase. It's what I titled the message today because I love it so much for the people had a mind to work they were ready to get this job done they were exhausted they were scared they were wanting to give up it kind of sounds like a group of baptists on Thursday of vacation bible school week i think all of those words fit exhausted scared wanting to give up but they resolved themselves to work anyway they were going to get it done Regardless of all that, their attitude was, our mission is too important. What God has given us to do is too important for us to not finish strong. The third thing and way Nehemiah responds to adversity is he prepares. I love this. He's prepared for an attack. There's, there's a couple great passages here. You have the, the one verse on the screen for chapter 4, verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the spaces behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Why did he do that? Why did he put them in their own families and their own clans? For obvious reasons, to keep their morale high, and also because if you're defending your own family, you're defending your wife and your kids, aren't you going to fight a little harder? And so Nehemiah is smart, and he, he's strategic, and he's prepared. And then even while the people work, they're prepared for an attack. Look at this passage, verses 15 through 18. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, half held spears, shields, bows, coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the wall with one hand and held his weapon with the other. They're working, but they're also prepared if anybody starts to come in. They're ready to fight. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. One of the most incredible stories, sadly, you know, the, the World War II generation is, is fading, and, and there's almost no one left from that generation, people who served our country in World War II. I knew this guy at Grizzle Street Baptist when I was their youth pastor named Jack Dell. And we had, we had lots of guys at Grizzle Street back in those years who had been in World War II, and you know, they had great stories to tell, and I used to love to listen to those stories. But Jack Dell blew my mind. Just a little guy. He was probably about... I don't know, Julie, about so high, right? His job in World War II was to build bridges. But you know where he built bridges? Under enemy fire, on the front lines. So he's not shooting back. I mean, got all the respect in the world for those guys too, right? But Jack is trying to build a bridge. Can you imagine trying to build something? Okay, oh, we got to put that truss up over here. Oh, we got to do this, we got to do that. And the whole time you're getting shot at right? That's the type of situation that I think Nehemiah and his men are under. They're building, but the entire time, the entire time, they are under attack. Fourth, the fourth thing he does is he encourages. Look at verse 14. And I look in a rose, and I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. I love how Nehemiah says this because he focuses them not only on their own families who they are fighting and building this wall for, but he focuses on the greatness of God and the importance of the mission that they're accomplishing. Those four ideas, church, I believe provide us a great model, a great model that you and I can follow whenever we face adversity in our lives. We ought to pray we got to keep working, we got to be prepared, and we need to encourage. Let's return to the main principles and finish this up. have got one more. Just to review, Nehemiah prayed, Nehemiah acted, Nehemiah teamed up, Nehemiah worked, Nehemiah overcame adversity. The last one and the final one is Nehemiah got it done. Nehemiah completed the mission. He finished the work, and, and here we see the, uh, the culmination of that, chapter 6, verses 15 through 16, talk about the end of this project, where they had completed the wall, not just halfway up, but all the way up. They hit their goal, and this is what he writes. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the, mount, the month of Elul, and look, look what he says, in 52 days. They accomplished this project in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. And here's why. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Nehemiah doesn't say, man, we are awesome. (laughs) He doesn't say, we rock, right? He says, God is awesome. And the people saw that. Nehemiah and his team got it done. They built the wall. What a story! What a story! Now, I'm going to wrap this up, I promise, but we can't leave these lessons in the ancient past. We have to bring them home to today. What is the Lord building here at Fellowship Baptist Church? What is he doing here? What is our role in the construction process? Here's what I believe Here's what I believe the Lord is doing here at Fellowship. As someone who's been here for a few years now, Carl Nelson shoots me a text. I think it was on July the 4th, actually. says, hey, you want to come preach here a couple times? Sure. Okay, and then a few months later, I'm the interim pastor here. And then a few months after that, I'm the pastor here. So I've been around a little bit now. I've, I've been getting to know this church. I've been getting to know you guys. And you know what? There's a lot more of you guys now. Praise God. Praise God for so many new people we have seen come into this church, so many young families. Based on what I am witnessing here at Fellowship, here's what I believe is happening. I believe our church is growing, and I believe that we need to be ready for an attendance explosion post-COVID. I think once COVID is behind us, and there will come a day, as hard as it is to believe right now, where all of that will be behind us. I believe we are going to have a little bit of an issue in this auditorium. I, I think we need to be ready for that. I, I believe that the Lord is building here a large, family-friendly church that grows, that grows by sharing the gospel with the unsaved, and by raising our own children in the faith. God is bringing in so many new young families. We have got to, let me say to you this way, church, it would be plain wrong if we miss our day of opportunity right now. If we do not realize our responsibility to the young families who have started to come here. We have so many new young families, so many new children. If you guys come on a Wednesday night, just walk to that side of the building and you'll feel what I'm talking about. There are so many kids now, and it's growing. Every week, every week, I look out in this auditorium, like, I haven't met them yet, I haven't met them yet, I haven't met them yet. God is growing this church, and he wants us to be faithful. He wants us to be faithful to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples. He wants us to raise our kids in the faith so that our children grow up loving Jesus and loving serving him. So that they grow up realizing that they are not missing out on anything by choosing Christ. Amen? Amen. That's what God is doing here, church. I believe the Lord is building a healthy life-giving church that is going to be a bright light in the southern part of St. Clair County. This is the vision that I believe God has given me for fellowship, and I can see it happening. I'm watching it happen by his glory, by his grace, for his namesake. Church, we need to respond to this. This is not a time for us to do as little as we possibly can do. This is a time for us to lean in, and like Dr. Blackaby says in experiencing God, to witness what God is doing and to get on board with it. Amen? That's what we need to do. So if you agree with me, then let's follow the example of Nehemiah. Let's follow that example. If you agree with me that that is God's mission here at Fellowship Baptist, let's follow his example And pray. Let's lead with prayer. Earnest, consistent prayer. Let's act. Let's team up together and work, realizing that we can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. We need each other. Let's overcome adversity when it comes, and it will come. There are going to be times where we are attacked from the outside, and there are going to be times when we are discouraged on the inside. But when that happens, let's overcome adversity. And let's get the mission done together. Amen, church? Amen. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes? Worship team, come on up. I'll save the action step for after we sing. But let's worship the Lord first. Father, we just give you glory and praise right now. Lord, I'm so thankful that Nehemiah's God is our God. Lord, you have not changed you still give God-sized missions when we seek you, when we humble ourselves before you, when we pray and we repent and we we make ourselves available to you. Lord, you want to do amazing things through us. So God, I pray that we would learn from this story this morning, that we would take this to heart. Lord, I pray for everyone in the congregation, they would go home and read it for themselves and think about these principles again and that we would ask you, Holy Spirit, what would you have me do? What would you have me do to accomplish your mission, God? Pray this all in Christ's name, amen.